0: Uh, a remix. So.
1: What up, what up, Medicine Remix? It's your boy, Eddie Truck Gordon, UFC Ultimate Fighter Champion.
0: Yeah, let me tell you something. Your station is bananas, firing to, to try to be like you, man. Keep doing what you do. I love it. Much love.
2: As I said from the beginning, from the first time I saw your account, I said, you're doing something that nobody else is doing in medicine, and by the heavens, you must continue. Because you are showing the young generation what is possible. You must continue.
0: Sim Osgood on Medicine
2: Reading.
0: Sim Osgood, one reason you went to the Pro Bowl is a specialty. Plays like that. He's able to strip it, and then it stays in bounds. He takes a seat, crosses his legs. No problem, guys. Go to work. Medicine Remix is a great station because you guys just cover the full gamut of the human persona, the human life. You guys send out prescriptions of life. What I love about you guys' show, Medicine Remix, is the fact that you guys
1: will take a hip-hop quote, put it into a prescription formula because people need to know how to live. Artwork in the form of rap, hip-hop sort of like now we're Pfizer and we're telling you these could be your side effects. if you don't check yourself it's true you will wreck yourself you will. <laughs> hey guys I just wanted to let you know I'm hanging out with someone from Apple and they said that they listened to your station and loved it just wanted to give you that feedback
2: nice That's here scary me.
1: remix next big thing get on it now
2: appreciate that brother make the most of today thank you for listening you're listening to medicine remix <laughs> bye for today's Medicine Remix show comes from Zipitor anti-talk listening tablets for those who not only need to listen, but more importantly, for those who need to listen with a willingness to let others change their minds. Imagine that. Zipitor is now available in liquid, designed for those who just can't seem to swallow their pride. Zipitor, just shut the fuck up and listen. Side effects of Zipitor may include verbal constipation, not jumping to conclusions, and severe empathy. Ask your doctor or your significant other if Zipitor is right for you. Now, back to listening at its best, Medicine Remixed. Hi, we're
1: not
0: in right now, but if you leave your name and number, we'll get back to you, to you, to you.
2: medicine remixed
1: (laughs) hello my friends so I recently had some blood work done and it was not good news and I am now prescribed to take a medicine that's called hold it hold it let me see if I can find it (laughs) Lipitor Lipitor which apparently is a very very strong drug and I will be taking this for a long period of time until I can fix whatever is going on with my body. Um, But my mom recently passed away of a heart attack and my dad also passed away of a heart attack. So I have the same type of condition that they had and it's really progressing, progressing pretty quickly. And I'm only 33. So the doctor said that if I don't fix what I'm doing, I will not make it to 40. Yay! So what do you know about Lipitor? I would love to know.
2: Hey, Sheena, it's Rich. Lipitor is the brand name for atorvastatin, which is in a class of medications known as statins, which are some of the most commonly prescribed drugs in modern medicine, in fact. Uh, statins are used along with a proper diet to help lower the bad kind of cholesterol, aka LDLs, which stands for low-density lipoproteins, as well as the bad kind of fats, known as triglycerides. And to a lesser extent, statins can also raise the good kind of cholesterol, aka HDLs, or high-density, lipoproteins in the blood so it's super effective in patients with coronary artery disease which sounds like you have some family history of and technically it is a strong medication as you say but it's common enough that many doctors have kiddingly say that they should just put statins in the water this is all coming from an orthopedic surgeon so it's not my area of expertise so hope it's helpful for you and i actually have an interview coming up for our documentaries series where we interview doctors in various specialties that are interesting and vibe with the Medicine Remixed culture. So I have an interview with a cardiologist coming up, Dr. Venu Chenamseti, who's actually also my cousin. He's a cardiologist in Connecticut. He was part of the heart team that actually took care of Bill Clinton after his heart attack back in uh, 2004. Um, So I'll definitely bring up this question again with him And have him uh, comment on it and have your call in published in the episode if you're okay with that. And if you have anything else you want me to ask him before I do the interview with him, please uh, feel free to ask away and I'll have him comment on that. So thanks for your call in and hope uh, this will be helpful for you. Thank you for calling the Medicine Remix hotline. Please leave.
0: Message. At
2: the sound of the beep. Thank you.
1: Hey, thank you so much for elaborating on Lupitor. Uh, It did make me feel a lot better about taking the drug. Uh, I've never really taken drugs in my life, so this is new to me. And I think this the whole premises of me having to take such a strong drug for the first time is kind of freaking me out. But thank you so much for giving me the rundown. It did make me feel a lot better. I am super stoked about this doctor, the cardiologist that you're going to talk to because this does run in my family. And I would love to know how to combat heart disease and what I can do to get healthier, right? I would love that. So that would be amazing. And you're more than welcome to publish my call in. I'm actually going to start a blog called My um, Cholesterol Journey, mycholesteroljourney.com. And I'm going to be posting on there about what I'm eating and things like that. Um, So that might be something that we can collaborate on later on um, if you'd be interested because I'm going to try and just update people on my condition and what I'm doing to combat it.
2: What it do, Medicine Remix Crew? It's your boy Reesh that you hear in your ear. we have another installment of our Doctor Mentories interview series, where we talk to doctors from various specialties in medicine that vibe with the remix culture that we're trying to create on Medicine Remix. Our guest on today's episode is Dr. Venu Chennamsetti, a board-certified cardiologist currently practicing in Connecticut. He went to medical school in Albany, New York, and did his internal medicine training at Brown University in Providence, Rhode Island, and then went on to do his fellowship at New York Medical College in West. Chester, New York, during which time he was part of the heart team that took care of former president Bill Clinton after his heart attack in 2004. Seriously? He's been in practice for about a decade now and has racked up several honors and awards, including Castle Connolly's Top Doctors Award, Top Doctor Recognition by U.S. News and World Report, and the Vitals Compassionate Doctor Award. He was recently on Connecticut Style's TV show where he dropped some knowledge gems about heart health and nutrition.
0: Heart disease, first of all, is the number one killer in both both men and women, but fortunately there are certain lifestyle changes we can make in order to prevent or try to prevent heart disease. One of the things I always talk about is these quick-fix fad diets that a lot of people have adopted, and the truth is this is not the best way to prevent heart disease. We really need a long-term goal because this is what's necessary to keep the arteries flowing with blood and prevent any blockages. Yeah. And as some of us have realized, there's actually a lot of conflicting information out there. For example, I think for decades we've always been told stick to low-fat diet all we heard was low fat low fat low fat Ah. it's important to avoid fats from animal meats red meats things like that but I don't know if you know some fats are actually very good for you these are called good fats they're found in fish avocados nuts and in moderation we should try to have some of those and you know it's important to know that a lot of new science basically it's been indicating sugar more the culprit and it's true what happens when we eat a high sugar meal or high sugar diet our body secretes bursts of a hormone called insulin Mm -hmm. insulin is necessary for sugar regulation. But when you have these bursts of insulin, our body eventually becomes resistant to it, creating a state called insulin resistance. Now, insulin resistance puts us at risk of a lot of diseases including diabetes, hypertension, and heart disease itself. Stay away from sugars, processed foods. I tell my patients to eat food that are high in lean proteins, high in fiber, low in sugars, carbs, and processed foods. I try not to prescribe medications. I try to stay conservative. We could really use our own willpower to some extent but I'll tell you a patient story, for example, one of my long-term patients, he just could not cut down on food, he couldn't cut down the portions. I gave him some advice, you know, he used to always go for seconds and sometimes even thirds. I told him, try this, eat your portion that you're planning to eat and tell yourself you can have seconds or even thirds, but just wait about 20 to 30 minutes before you do that. And the reason I told them this is because that's about how long it takes for our intestine To tell your brain that you actually feel full. You see there's a hormone that our body secretes called leptin. Mm -hmm. Leptin is secreted from our body in response to a meal and it has to act on our brain for us to actually feel full. So basically you have to give it that 20 to 30 minutes. You have to kind of give some time for the process for your brain to actually know you're full. So this particular patient he tried that and it really worked for him. He lost a lot of weight and actually I was able to take him off one of his blood pressure medications and he was very happy about that and no medication was needed. Just simple Lifestyle changes. Uh, great tips, Dr. Chenamseti. There's plenty
2: more where that came from in this episode of Documentaries with Venu Channam-Setti. He's certainly a physician who practices what he preaches about healthy lifestyle, which is a lot more rare than you might think. Seriously. He's certainly been a role model for me growing up. He's been married to my first cousin, Kavita, a successful dentist who we'll probably have on the show at some point to talk about dental health. Yeah. Shout out to her. They've been married for like, I think, 20 years now. My God. Although, you you'd never be able to tell because uh, neither of them seem to age. Whoa. But uh, without further ado, enjoy this phenomenal documentaries interview with Dr. Venu City Peace. <laughs> Hey, what's up, man? How you doing, man? Good, good. It's perfect that when we texted, like, an hour ago, you said you were at the gym, because that's, like, so on-brand with <laughs> Yeah, that's
0: right. Yeah. <laughs> Practice what you preach, right?
2: Yeah, exactly, which I feel like is a lot more rare than people might think as far as doctors practicing being healthy, because, like, I right. found that doctors are probably some of the least healthy people, ironically, yeah. just, yeah, just so as cool. far as, yeah, everything from, like, sleep hygiene to just eating habits.
0: Yeah, totally. Yeah. I mean, it com- a part of it's with the field, you know, it could be intense, the training, and as you know, you know, yeah. enough time to get to the gym and eating in the hospital cafeterias between cases. like. Yeah,
2: and, that, and that's like another thing, you know, like the hospital cafeteria, just the idea of that just triggering a certain response for most people in that it's the shittiest, most unhealthy food. And it's just like, is this how they generate their business? By like,
0: yeah, <laughs> you right, know, like... Right. <laughs> Well, yeah, that, I mean, there might be healthy options, but the other thing is like, you know, when you don't have much time and you're hungry, like eating a salad takes a lot longer than just chowing down a burger. Yeah, (laughs) that's a really good point.
2: Yeah. (laughs) On that note, were you always super healthy and into fitness and nutrition or is that something that came later? Take us through your origin story, I guess, if you will. Sure. Yeah.
0: I mean, as far as the health situation goes, I think it was probably in high school that I became more into sports. Like I was more of an athlete starting in high school having played like football little basketball I rode crew and it was just the competitiveness of that kind of made me get into exercise and working out and along with that comes diet too right so right. if you're growing crew it's a thing that really makes you get into diet and exercise and staying in shape so that's probably when I really started getting into being fit and healthy and then I just kind of stuck with it always like to work out and then you know throughout my training through medical school as you probably know it could be pretty demanding mm-hmm. demanding and tiring even with the job now it could be very tiring and I think one of the things that gives me energy is to stay fit and make sure I make it to the gym and even eating healthy like it actually gives you more energy like if you eat a high carb meal or a lot of sugar or just like a greasy burger mm-hmm. feels great when you do it and you know every once in a while, we all gotta do it like I, yeah. I, I like my food so. but at the same time if you do that too much you just start feeling weighed down you have less energy for their responsibilities as a doctor and the demands that it may have so, so I just realize that sticking to that regimen of working out and eating generally healthy also gives me more energy to meet the demands of the day through being a student through medical school residency fellowship and even to this day i've realized that
2: yeah it's almost counterintuitive but i feel like i'm uh, my own case control study yeah. as far as those moments in time where you just completely fall off of the wagon and kind of get back on and you realize you know this is not only like giving me energy but also just a mental health
0: aspect of it too too, like, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I don't want to say it's an all or nothing because that makes it seem daunting. You know, like right, it's, it's true. Like I had the case control study in myself too. It's like, I don't know if you notice if you just stop working out all of a sudden for some reason or another, you probably eat unhealthier too. Yeah, you know, cuz that's less, right? You're just less into that type of a groove. And then when you start working out for whatever reason, like you have more time certain times where you just got that motivation to maybe go to the gym or stay healthier as far as fitness goes, then you start actually eating healthier. So yeah. You know, again, I don't want to say all or nothing because that's also not a good way to look at it because then people think either I do everything or I do nothing, you know? So that's not right. a good way look at it either. But at the same time, it's true that if you generally take a healthy lifestyle as far as exercise, you may be more inclined to eat healthier too Yeah, because you're kind of leaning towards that path. Right.
2: When I met you, you were probably just finishing medical school. So a lot of just like learning about you has been from other people. Being able to like actually ask you these questions just as far as how you live your life, especially right now, because at the stage that I'm in, you know, Rama and I talking about having kids and already just feeling overwhelmed at times to like figure out how to balance all of these things, which includes the whole self-care aspect and being healthy and practicing healthy habits. How do you, as a husband, as a dad of two kids, do you have a certain regimen or routine as far as how you're able to do all of these things? Or is it just kind of like whenever you have time,
0: you're pushing yourself to do this stuff. How do you do it? I mean I do try to keep some sort of a regimen. A lot of it's efficiency. Like even when you really think about it eating a healthy diet, even though I said earlier that eating a burger is much quicker than eating like maybe a salad with grilled chicken. But it's not that much longer. So too. You know what you I mean? Right. People just think of it that way. Like oh I'm in such a hurry. Like I only have perception. Like, right. Right. Perception. Like you could actually sit down and eat some sort of like a salad or vegetables and uh, maybe a piece of fruit and grilled chicken or something rather than wolf down like a greasy burger a kick at, you know. Right, right. It's more just a perception, like you said. So that the diet part is not really a time thing. It's more of like a I guess a willpower, or a perception thing. Um mm-hmm. but the other thing, yeah, as far as making it to the gym, I think a lot of it is back to that all or nothing thing. I think back when I was in high school and college, when I was more playing sports and more of an athlete, like it was like you had to go to the gym for like two hours to compete. Yeah. Flipping weights, hitting the basketball court or the football field or like running on the treadmill, biking like to compete took a lot of time, but right. now in my stage, like having kids, being a doctor, that's not, you don't need two or three hours in the gym. So I, it's all about efficiency for me. Like if I'm going to make it to the gym after work, even if I, you know, get done with workout, whatever that time may be, let's like say it's seven o'clock or whatever. I just tell myself just one hour. A lot of staying healthy and leading a healthy lifestyle. I don't think we should tell ourselves we need so much more time. We may not have enough time if we think that way. Major killer You know, I think we could all find say 30 to 45 minutes to exercising, maybe not every day, but like most yeah. days, if it was going to the gym or whatever you do, you have to keep moving. You know, it's all about staying moving. I know a lot of us feel like we don't have time to meet all the responsibilities in life as far as work or family and kids and whatever other responsibilities we may have and working out is not always at the top of our list. One thing to keep in mind is even at this stage, especially to prevent cardiovascular disease, even just exercising a little bit, like even at work, taking the stairs rather than taking the elevator <laughs> or going for a brisk walk in your neighborhood or if you want to go to the gym real quickly, like don't waste time there. Don't go there and talk to your buddies for like five minutes between whatever sets you might do. I think uh, a mild to moderate circuit training is good. It just keeps you moving. For example, just get on the bike or treadmill and then do some weights and then move on to like the bike or treadmill again or the elliptical. You just just want to keep moving. And by doing that, you're not in the gym for like an hour and a half or even an hour. You can probably do that for like 30, 40 minutes and still get excellent cardiac benefits for
2: that yeah I find that along with the all or none theme I think the perception for a lot of people is that they need to be doing an hour or even like 30 minutes what would you say to somebody who's like never worked out a day in their life they're morbidly obese as far as like a very like realistic goal for them because like 30 minutes for somebody in that context might be like two hours for us
0: you know what I mean yeah it's a great question it has a pretty good answer actually as far as studies and and trials. Mm-hmm. As far as exercise goes, as far as cardiovascular benefits, more exercise will help you. But if you look at the curve, actually, if you go from doing nothing to even a little bit, like 20 minutes, mm-hmm. that's actually the steeper part of the curve and the benefit for your heart. In other words, the ones who go from nothing to doing just a little bit oh. actually gain more from the ones who are exercising an hour and they change that to two hours. Right. Um, you know, if you can visualize the curve, it actually plateaus out a little bit the more and more you do and it starts soft steep. So if you want it for your cardiovascular benefit, do something. If you just do 20 to 30 minutes, you're actually getting a huge benefit from doing zero. Now, for those of us who actually may have more time and want to do more exercise, the quote unquote dosage of exercise, it's been controversial. There have been multiple studies about how much exercise is best for cardiovascular health. Some studies have shown that maybe 150 minutes a week is good, which works out an hour twice and then a half hour another time. But the more you do, the better for your heart up to a certain point and every individual is different right but eventually it will plateau out that's the bottom line my opinion if you can do about 30 to 60 minutes of aerobic exercise about five times a week yeah that's that's very beneficial to your heart but at the same time if you can't do that and you're doing nothing i don't think those people should think well i can't do an hour a day right you know for five days a week like (laughs) i'm it's like i can't do it that's really not the correct way to think because like i mentioned it's Actually, them, even if they did 20 minutes a day for three times a week, they would probably get more benefit than anyone else because they were at such high risk of being inactive that they would get a huge amount of benefit by doing something.
2: As you're saying this, I'm thinking about the number of patients that I've seen in clinic over my training and then now after training trying to be evaluated for like a knee replacement or a hip replacement, but they are well over our cutoffs for what is safe to take this patient to surgery or what's up and it becomes a situation where it's like, these people are so deconditioned and they have this severe arthritis and then doing any type of aerobic exercise winds up being painful for them, winds up being an excuse for You lack of a better way to (laughs) say that. But what would you say if that is the case, then just doing like weight training, just like some sort of resistance training that doesn't involve impacting the joints, is that at all comparable? it's obviously preferable to nothing, but how does that compare to doing aerobic exercise like you're saying?
0: Right. You know, it's interesting. This is when your field and my field yeah. actually coincide or, right. or combine and right, and, and it often does because that actually happens a lot. So first of all, the question is if you have severe orthopedic problems such as severe arthritis and you just can't do a significant amount of exercise, what can those people do, right? Exactly. Um, as far as weight training, that might still be hard if they can do any weight training. The answer to that that question is, yeah, weight training is also beneficial. In fact, for those of us who are doing only cardiovascular or aerobic exercise and no weight training, it's yeah. actually better to combine it. More recent studies show that the best exercise regimen is to combine some resistance training and aerobic training, even for your heart, even for your health, not just for the way you look, but even for your health. It actually does help resistance training. The problem with the people with severe enough orthopedic issues is they might not even be able to do enough weight training to make much of a difference. So one thing, Thing I recommend to those people there are some things like swimming type of exercises or yeah. water aerobics Like I've been a strong proponent of that because that could be as is- you may be able to input on this as well, as that's probably much easier on the joints, right? Absolutely, yeah. Yeah, so that's one thing I recommend. And, you know, anything that they can find that doesn't exacerbate their orthopedic issues. For example, like some people, they have bad back pain, but they can do certain things, like they can do the bike or they can walk on the treadmill, but they certainly can't do weight training or run. So I think people with joint problems just have to find whatever they can find. The key idea is to get your heart rate up as much as possible by doing some sort of exercise. Exercise. gotcha
2: one thing now I feel like you know with the rise of technology and all these apps there's so many good fitness apps out there this this past weekend I was down visiting Rama's family and then you know I was talking to my brother-in-law who's also in medicine and we're talking about he doesn't have much time he has like a four-year-old kid and like all this stuff and I told him about this app called the seven minute workout get ready which is just like high intensity interval training doesn't involve any weights you don't need to go to the gym it's just stuff right. that jumping jack-
1: Next up jumping jacks and
2: push-ups start push ups. I think having a situation like that where it's like you're getting a workout but like you can't really argue about not having seven minutes if that that's your thing, right. like as far as saying that you don't have time. Because like every single person on earth has seven <laughs> minutes even like, exactly. you know, the, the president of the United States. Our current president has way more time than that. <laughs> <laughs> but, <laughs> True. but the point being, there are things that are making it easier and easier for us to, to exercise like the Fitbits and the quantification of our and our right. ability to do that. Are there anything in particular that you tell your patients as far as apps or different actionable things that they could either do with their
0: exercise or, or nutrition? As far as apps and things like that, I personally, maybe it's because my patients tend to be on the older side. I don't. I think you're right. On one hand, it is nice to have all those apps. But on the other hand, I just think the world has made it more complicated than mm. it might really be. Yes, sir. The truth is, this isn't that complicated. Other than things like that, if, if it's a clear-cut app about a particular workout like you mentioned the seven minute workout just the information on what to do for those seven minutes rest next stop wall sits or so, however many short amount of minutes that could be helpful but as far as diet i try to just instruct them there's certain rules that you should follow as far as diet goes we may not all have the most accurate information for example one thing is i think throughout our lives that fats have always been villainized we've always thought stay away from fats everything's about low fat all the advertised diets or healthy snack bars are mm-hmm. low Low fat, low fat. But the truth is, all fats are not as unhealthy as we think. There are certain things called good fats. These are fats found in fish, the fats found in nuts, avocados. Those are actually very healthy for you and you shouldn't shy away from those. Really, I think a big villain we've always underestimated is sugars. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Sugars really, really are the problem. In fact, a lot of these low fat snacks that are supposed to be healthy, what happens is they get loaded with sugar. That's why they taste good. You know, everyone says, oh, this low fat snack bar. It tastes great, it's low fat, so it must be healthy. But that's actually not true because it's very high in sugar, Mm -hmm. which is worse than fat. This yogurt is really something, huh? And it's non-fat! I've been waiting for something like this my whole life! (laughs) A few of the reasons sugar is worse than fat. One reason is sugar actually tends to make you not feel as full as fat. For example, if you take 200 calories of sugars versus 200 calories of fat, same amount of calories, but you'll feel much more full with the 200 calories of fat. Whoa. After you eat the 200 calories of sugar, you probably notice. I mean, if you're starving and you're at a candy bar, you're going to be hungry in about 30 minutes. Yeah. That's not really satisfying your hunger. No. And that's been proven. That could be a real problem. And in fact, several studies have shown that sugars can act on a part of your brain that actually make you crave sugars even more. So not only does it not make you feel full, it's actually going to cause you to want to eat even more sugars, almost like an addictive situation. Yeah, like
2: a drug. Word.
0: Almost like a drug where you eat 200, 300 calories sugar hoping that that'll satisfy your hunger and keep you away from food. But in fact, you're going to just want to eat even more of those same sugars. Other thing about sugars is that it causes your body to secrete pulses of a hormone called insulin. And high levels of insulin, what that does is it puts your body in a situation where you're at higher risk of several diseases, including hypertension, diabetes, and even heart disease itself. So you really want to stay away from sugars as far as diet goes as much as possible. What's healthy is to eat food high in fiber, high in lean proteins, and even healthy fats. And that's not only healthy for your heart, but it'll also help you to lose weight. Baby, baby. Because these foods also make you feel full. If you eat these foods, you're less likely to binge on more foods later on that day.
2: Got it. And as far as like timing of eating or just portions and things like that, like, does it matter how late you're eating? My parents growing up would always be like, oh, we eat so late and then we oh, go to right. sleep. and doesn't break down.
0: Is there any truth to that? You know, this is a controversial subject. I'll be honest, most doctors and professionals will tell you that it does matter. I, I, we've all heard it, right? You shouldn't yeah. eat late. You shouldn't eat after seven. You shouldn't eat after eight. You know, I've taken interest in that also being of Indian background where everyone eats really late, right? Yeah. <laughs> My parents ate probably as late as your parents, right? right. Just how it was. I don't think the exact answer is known. And I'll also say that I don't think there's actually any clear evidence that eating later versus earlier is worse for your cardiovascular health. I think more important is what you eat. Often what happens, I think, is that people eat on the earlier side, they eat dinner at 5.30 or 6.30, which is more common, but then they're gonna get hungry at about 10.30 or 11. And often what happens, I see with my patients, is they eat a snack at that time before bed because they're starving by that time, right? It's been five hours since their last meal. If you looked at the risks and benefits, that would probably be worse than kinda of holding off till a later dinner, eight or nine, and then not eating again. Because still the overall calories consumed in a day is far more important of what time that day they were consumed
2: major killer that makes sense and even you know during like public health school I remember bringing this question up uh, to a nutritionist and she pretty much said exactly what you said but at the same time the jury's kind of still out on anything like statistically significant but that makes perfect sense to me what you just
0: said I mean you're right that's that's a good way to put it. the jury's uh, honestly still out I think that a lot of even professionals kind of put it as the jury's not out if eat earlier that's the better way to do it you know this is a situation I don't agree with there's really no clear data. I think that people kind of think to themselves, oh, your body stores more fat. When you're sleeping, you're going to store more fat, so you don't want to do that. I don't think that there's any clear evidence dictating either way that when you eat your food in a given day It would be better. It's more so what you're eating and how much you're eating.
2: Got it. The documentary. The documentary. Who's the doc that he told you to go see? Da, 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 <laughs> On the topic of eating late and coming from like South Asian families and I've seen studies recently just showing that people that are South Asian like us have something like four times greater risk of heart disease than the general population and have much greater chance of having a heart attack before the age of 50. Why is that the case?
0: Yeah, you know, there's probably a bunch of reasons. And there probably is a genetic component that puts South Asians at higher risk of heart disease. And unfortunately, that part can't be changed. But also, some are modifiable. I think in general that South Asian diet is not particularly healthy. <laughs> it's not the right. fact that one we're eating, it's what we're eating.
2: Why well, tastes so good. <laughs> <laughs>
0: exactly, you're right. <laughs> the contrary of what I said that we should be avoiding, South Asian diets, they're all about simple carbohydrates, rice, breads greasy foods, bad fats as pure fried oils, that can certainly be changed. And I think that's a big part of it. Maybe it's changing now, but I think that in our culture, especially as we were growing up back in the day, yeah. I don't think that exercise and sports were as, in general anyway, in our community, they weren't as emphasized, right? Yeah. <laughs> so some of those things are modifiable. I think that diet and exercise can be changed. And I think it's slowly happening. Like I mentioned before, unfortunately, I think it seems to be that there also is a. change genetic component. One thing, for example, is that South Asians in general have an extremely high risk of diabetes. Part of that is genetic. It's not just because of poor habits. And there's actually a theory behind the genetics behind that, which is somewhat interesting. It's called the thrifty gene hypothesis. I don't know if you've ever heard of it.
2: Actually, no, I don't think so.
0: It's a hypothesis. The thought is that India and South Asia in general was a very poor part of the world where starvation was an issue not that long ago, 100, yeah. 200 years ago. And at a time like that is a time where Perhaps certain genes that would make your blood glucose higher at a time where you need it would actually be very advantageous to one, right? In other words, it was an advantageous gene to create an environment in your body where your blood glucose was able to stay high. Whoa. So, if that's an advantageous gene 100 or 200 years ago, as we know in theory of evolution, is those genes may more likely be passed on. And now we have present day us, where right. the genes more likely to be passed on to the present day South Asians, such as us, we would more likely be those genes that would code for our sugars being higher rather than lower. The difference is, we're not starving so much anymore, right? Yeah. (laughs) Uh, Even in South Asia, right? Not so much starving that the tables are full of rice and desserts and grease and particularly rice and carbohydrates and breads. So (laughs) our genes, in other words, I guess a simple way to put it is, our genes today are more likely not made for that. Right. Our genes were made possibly for starvation type of diets. They're not made for the amount of carbohydrates and rice that South Asians today now eat. So as a result, diabetes is extremely common in South Asians. But on top of that, beyond diabetics, I think it seems that South Asians in general are more prone to cardiovascular disease, which means that we should be more careful with our lifestyles. Um. We should probably take things even more seriously as far as exercise and diet and controlling those things, not less seriously.
2: Thinking about your family, if you have an older sister and younger brother, like all of you guys that would consider very fit compared to the average South Asian and both your parents too. Your dad is a physician anesthesiologist. Was there something different that you noticed in your household versus the typical first generation South Asian childhood as far as any of that stuff?
0: No, you know, to be honest, not particularly. That may have just been somewhat random to be honest. Kavita, my wife, always says that my diet was atrocious growing up. You know, I probably became more healthy after moving out of the home. I think for my sister and brother, or, and I, we became more into sports and that may have changed things for us. It's true. It's possibly subconsciously. My dad was always seemed to be into his health. He would actually go jogging, I remember, and maybe that subconsciously played a role. That's possible.
2: And was there anything in particular that led you into medicine and then ultimately cardiology other than just growing up as an Indian kid? <laughs>
0: right. <laughs> Interesting question. Um, when I was uh, growing up, you would relate to this very well. I think like most people in our community were going into medicine and being Indian I think even at a young age we're kind of strongly encouraged. Right? Nice way
2: of saying it. <laughs> you doctor yet? No dad, I'm 12. Talk to me when you doctor.
0: <laughs> Growing up as a little kid, way back in elementary school I'm talking about, I don't think at that age you even really internalized that you're being strongly encouraged to go into yeah. one another, right? Your parents just want you to do well in school. In those days I don't know if you used to make those summer trips back to India, right? Yeah. Where you spend the whole summer in India and no one else in my parents' family were doctors, just my dad. So we used to stay in like some of these like really hardcore villages. Like oh, yeah. half the time, no electricity, no running water, parts of the places, right? So I remember just thinking like, wow, like this this world is a lot bigger than Massachusetts where I grew up, right? Yeah. And I remember thinking also like as I got older and older, like even up to junior high, as we'd go back there in the summer, is like, wow, there's really a lot to do in this world. There's really a lot you can do good in this world, you know. Mm-hmm. Okay people and I just saw the medical care, the hardships that people went through in life versus our somewhat sheltered lives in New York and Boston suburbs where you and I grew up. But then I started going into high school and I think that pressure that the Indian community puts on us to go into fields like medicine actually turned me off to it. Mm -hmm. And I kind of went away from it. I said I don't want to go into medicine. I started looking into other fields like engineering and business, right? Because I said I don't want to be like everyone else. You know, I make my own decision. I don't want to be pressured to do what I should be doing. This is my life, right? Exactly. So I actually backed away from it in ninth and 10th grade. I started exploring other things and then, you know what, in 11th grade after exploring everything, what I began to realize is that there's very few fields that you could truly make a difference in people's lives every day. And I realized that in my life, like, it's not even about money. It's not even about, you know, how much money you make and material goods. It's more about living your life and at the end when you breathe your last breath you want to look back and say, did I make a difference in this world, and I want to do that. And I'm not going to be scared away from living that life just because I'm coming from a community where you're pressured to do that anyway. I'm not doing this because I'm being pressured to do it. I'm doing it because I want to live a life that's meaningful to me. You know what I mean? Yeah. Uh, and I feared that being in this community of medicine was actually going to do the opposite, and scare me away oh, yeah. from a field that was actually perfect for me. You know? Right. So that was in 11th grade, and in fact, I became so sure at that point and confident that that's what I want to do that much. Like you, I started applying to direct programs where we get into medical school right out of high school. That's what I ended up doing. I ended up going into a medical program where you go to college and you get a direct admissions to a medical school. And I particularly chose one that it was Siena College and Albany Medical College. The unique thing is that it really valued community service. And in fact, it required that you travel for two summers in your time there. You were required to travel to an underserved area of the world. and serve there and work there. I had chosen Eastern Europe and Kenya, for example. I think those experiences in those countries further solidified that there's a lot to do in medicine to help people. There's a lot of people who need help in this world. And in my opinion, that's the way that I would breathe my last breaths and think to myself that I led a meaningful life.
2: That's a great answer. (laughs) Um, And as far as cardiology, it's so interesting because, you know, in going through my rotations, cardiology was something that I remember even to this day that I was just like, you know, cardiology is awesome. But right. then the path to get to be a cardiologist, you have to do internal medicine first for three years, and then you apply it for right. cardiology. And that was something that I was just like, Oh, I don't know if I can do this. Yeah. you know. But it always fascinated me because I grew up loving music and you're studying rates and rhythms in a different right. way. Even now when I'm editing these podcasts and things like that, the whole idea of what a sound wave and an audiogram is it almost was like looking at EKGs for other people just look like a bunch of squiggles, but they were all such meaningful, like the electrical activity of our heart. What kind of drew you into cardiology? Any particular moments that you remember that you were just like, that's what I want to do? During
0: residency, I kept my mind open in what types of field I should go into. But even during medical school, I always liked cardiology. I I liked the heart, just like you said. The physiology behind it, the fact that literally this organ is constantly beating and you wouldn't even know it fascinated me. And the slightest thing could go wrong with it and one can die. That fascinated me too. So just the anatomy behind it, the physiology behind it always fascinated me throughout medical school. And then when I got to residency and I did the different rotations and the different subspecialties, a few things about cardiology really drew me to it. First of all, cardiology is a field that you can make a big difference. It's a field that, you know, somebody who's having a heart attack, if it's caught at the right time, if the symptoms are caught at the right time by the patient and the community and they present to us for medical care, you can literally, Save a life. It's not yeah. the thing that, right? It's not the type of thing where the outcome may or may not matter based on what happens next. It 100% matters. We we can save that person's life, and that really exhilarating to me because that's kind of what I thought of medicine. You know, that's kind of what I thought about what the medical field is about. 100%. The second thing that I liked about cardiology is it's not just about that. It's not just about that point where they need their life saved, right? Mm-hmm. What we've talked about tonight, for example, we've talked about things that you can do in your life that don't even really require medical attention that could prevent a person from ever getting to that point, you know? Right. So that really fascinated me, too. And then additional things it's challenging. You know, like you said, the squiggly lines, the EKGs, the procedures, the, the diagnosis, and trying to figure out exactly is it the heart, is it not the heart, what should we do next? And it also involves a lot of actual patient interaction where you're talking to the patients, trying to figure out what's going on, figure out the next steps, and then go with the treatment plan. So it really fit what I wanted. It's especially where I can truly help people also be challenged. And like I mentioned, the physiology and anatomy has always been fascinating to me. Makes total
2: sense. And you said something as far as patients recognizing some of these symptoms in the context of a heart attack. And I think that education piece is so huge for any physician in any field, but particularly as it relates to cardiology and having a heart attack and how different they can present in different people, you know, the difference between males and females, and right. you know, what type of things for the listeners should you be aware of as far as some of those differences in how a heart attack can present?
0: Yeah, so the classic symptom of how a heart attack or even uh, warning signs of a heart attack may present, it would be pain right in the middle of your chest to maybe slightly left-sided. It may radiate to your jaw or down your left arm. And one important thing is that it often gets worse when you do some physical exertion. So if you feel it and then you, say, walk up two flights of stairs and you feel it even more that's more likely to be hard also there's certain associated symptoms often you might feel extreme sweating even though you didn't really do much sometimes i see patients they're sweating and they're not even doing anything you know Mm. and also shortness of breath at times patients can feel nausea and even vomiting so that those are what i just described with more of the somewhat classic symptoms and i often tell my patients this probably the most important thing to realize is that not everyone's going to feel the classic symptoms what i say is if everyone felt those classic symptoms, I think that we would have a lot less people dying of heart disease, Bro. right? Because they would know. They'd be okay, yeah. this is, let me call 911. The problem is that a lot of people feel an atypical presentation. Some of the atypical presentations, first of all, they may more often be felt in women for some reason. Right. And they may more often be in diabetics. You know, diabetics, there's some theories that the reason they may not feel the typical chest pain and pressure is because diabetes can also affect the nerves in right. your, your heart and around your chest, so they're not going to feel that. They might feel some strange, like very mild discomfort, or maybe none at all, and maybe just a little bit of a shortness of breath, or maybe jaw pain or arm pain, and so those are more the atypical symptoms. Women can also feel those similar kind of atypical symptoms. And I kind of wonder if the question is, why is it that women would feel different symptoms? I don't think it's ever really been described why women would feel symptoms, but it's possible that when you look into the history of medical education, maybe the the reason we call these what I described earlier is yeah. right, it's because they're felt in men, oh, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> maybe those really aren't, they're just felt in 50% of the human population, so so maybe they're not really atypical symptoms that women right. feel. It's possible that we should never call them typical and atypical in the first place. At the same time, having said that, more commonly, any person would more likely feel the initial symptoms of chest pressure, sweating, and related to exertion and relief by rest. Those are probably... if. I to summarize those are the most common symptoms of someone who might be having a heart attack.
2: And as far as like some of the testing, what blood tests would you recommend individuals receive, especially if they have like a family history of cardiovascular disease? Are there any specific cardiovascular risk biomarkers that are not typically checked during like routine physicals or that are often overlooked in like a standard cardiovascular workup?
0: You were talking about patients without symptoms, right? Like seemingly yeah. healthy
2: Right, exactly. Think. For example, the call-in question that we got, I guess this is a good point to segue into this call-in that we got from a 33-year-old female, you know, has a significant family history of heart disease. Both of her parents died of an MI fairly young, and she was recently placed on Lipitor by her primary care physician for high cholesterol levels that were found in her blood. And she called in and wanted to know more about statins, this class of drugs, as well as how she can lower her risk of early mortality from a heart attack in her family history. So for a person like her, what are some of the blood tests that you would want to order if they weren't ordered already by her primary care doctor?
0: Right. Did, did you say she did already get her cholesterol profile checked?
2: I believe, yeah.
0: That's probably the single most important blood test to order. It's called the fasting lipid profile, which basically checks your cholesterol. So let's kind of maybe back up. So basically we have a younger woman who has a strong family history of cardiac disease. As far as I've heard, no symptoms. You know, none of these symptoms I've mentioned at all and generally healthy as otherwise other than a new family history um we're kind of talking about more screening healthy patients uh, and in particular someone with a strong family history so first thing you always want to do is make sure she doesn't smoke the number one important thing, and I'm talking about all of us, all of these things are true for every one of us. It's just more important for young women like the one you mentioned with a strong family history of heart disease. Yeah. That's the easiest thing. Just don't smoke because that is one of the strongest risk factors for cardiac disease. Number two is make sure you keep an eye on the blood pressure because blood pressure is what we can call a silent killer and it can be completely asymptomatic. So you want to make sure that your blood pressure stays close to 120 over 80. That's the number. You can get that done at your doctor's office or multiple health fairs or, you know, all types of places that just check your blood pressure so you can keep that number in mind. It should be close to 120 over 80. Then you go to your activity, which we talked about. You don't want to be sedentary. You don't want to be doing nothing. Make sure you exercise, stay active, get into an exercise program that can reduce people's risk of heart disease, especially if you have a family history of heart disease. As far as blood work, the main important thing to check is the cholesterol profile of fast liquid lipid profile and when we check our cholesterol you know a lot of people talk about what's your cholesterol but that's probably not even an accurate question because cholesterol is broken down into several components the important components are bad cholesterol which is known as LDL mm-hmm. and the good cholesterol is known as HDL and another somewhat inaccurate question is what's a normal cholesterol because there's technically there's no real normal cholesterol because it depends on who you are in other words if you're an extremely high risk person if you've already had a heart attack You've had procedures and stents and bypass surgeries and diabetes. Mm-hmm. Then, no matter what your cholesterol is, it's too high. Yeah, <laughs> you know? yeah. Without medications, I mean. So those people always have to go on a cholesterol lowering medication. And a lot of my patients who have had these issues ask me, "Well, my cholesterol's fine. Like, why are you now putting me on a cholesterol medication?" And that's the reason because it doesn't matter. Whatever your cholesterol was, even though we considered it fine before, that you had a heart attack means that it was too high for you. You know. So that's one thing to keep in mind. But as far as the collar that you mentioned, she obviously hasn't had any of those issues. And if her LDL, bad cholesterol, is too high, over 160 is certainly too high. But, you know, this is where cardiology isn't always a complete science. If you have a really strong family history, sometimes I want to have my patients have even a lower cholesterol than the normal, like closer to lower than 130 or 100. This is just a bad cholesterol, the LDL. And I can't remember if you mentioned a doctor prescribed her a statin, right?
2: Yeah. Lipitor is
0: the drug. Right, so Lipitor is called a statin medication. That's a medication that there's a lot of data behind that medication. Lipitor is just one of them. There's multiple statin medications. And people whose LDL is too high, especially those who are at high risk of heart disease, such as her who has a strong family history of heart disease, I think a statin medication is a great option to drive that LDL closer to a far lower number. Gotcha.
2: I mean, it's probably one of the most common drugs that's prescribed in the Western world, I would think. I hear doctors joking all the time that they should just put it in the water, like like, um, half kiddingly. But is it one of those things that you feel like most people should be on if they're kind of flirting with that upper limit of normal? Or is there like a particular cutoff where it's just like a hard and fast rule that you should be on a statin?
0: First of all, as far as a particular cutoff, it's not so much about the number unless it's an extreme. Mm -hmm. In other words, if your bad cholesterol LDL is extremely high say over 190 just to give us all a sense here less than 100 is a very good value for your bad cholesterol I'm not talking about our total we always hear about total cholesterol which is not a very useful measurement you really want to know what the bad cholesterol is that's known as LDL so less than 100 is great if you get your cholesterol checked and your LDL is less than 100 then that's good if you're a healthy person again if you've had a heart attack at a LDL less than 100 that's still too high for you like we talked about earlier right but in in any case if your ldl is extremely high such as greater than 190 for example yeah yes that could be a hard fast rule that that person should get his cholesterol lower with the medication but anything other than that for a completely healthy person with no risk factors even if their ldl is like you said kind of slightly on the high side but not extremely high mm-hmm. there's no studies that show young healthy people should go on statins just because their cholesterol is moderately high if they're young and healthy no heart problems, no risk factors. At that point, what's more important is who that person actually, who that patient actually is. Does he or she have a strong family history? Like the young one we spoke about, does he or she have hypertension? It more matters about those of whether that person should be on a statin medication. So it's not just based on the number.
2: I've read in certain places that when your LDL numbers are higher, you might actually be able to produce lean muscle faster. (laughs) If you're obviously so you're doing a resistance training program is there any truth to that
0: you know it's hard to say I've read that in certain places too but you know there's no studies that have proven that the whole benefit of higher LDL I think it's very unfounded there's no studies that have shown that would be the case gotcha
2: and how about HDLs are there any ways other than with medications that can help increase that number because that's the good kind of cholesterol right. that we talk about that having a higher number is actually better is that correct
0: that's right yeah HDL is known as a good collection. And a higher number, for example, if you have an HCL cholesterol greater than 60, we've talked about all the risk factors for cardiac disease. Having an HCL greater than 60 is actually, you know, an inverse risk factor. It actually protects you from cardiac disease. So that's right that's the good cholesterol and you know unfortunately or fortunately the truth is some of these medications that can increase your HDL they're actually not effective and when I say not effective certain medications have been found to increase your HDL so in other words if you have a low HDL so suppose you somebody has a low HDL of you know 30 35 and there are some medications that they can be placed on that would increase their HDL but the truth is that increase of HDL is only cosmetic so that medication may have increased the HDL, but studies have shown that even those people who were on those medications and had the beneficial increase in HDL, it actually didn't lower their risk of heart attacks or strokes or death. Mm-hmm. Interestingly, so if it comes to cosmetic things, so I actually don't put people on medication if their LDL, their bad cholesterol is fine, yeah. uh, but their HDL is low. Because the numbers will look great in patients, even who are educated and they search online of these numbers, like they might say, oh, I want it and they might... You know, maybe another fish put them on and they love it. Oh, my HDL went from 36 to 45. You know, it's great, right? Right. But the truth is, it's not. They're taking the medication and subjecting themselves to side effects for no reason. Yeah. Because the studies have shown that that won't even help their heart health anyway. However, natural ways to increase HDL actually do help. So this is a situation which we like is where medications are not the right answer, but natural situations are natural meaning exercise. The more aerobic exercise you do, the better HDL will be major killer weight loss will also slightly improve your hdl certain foods believe it or not will actually help your hdl almonds nuts in general have actually been shown to increase your hdl as have fish believe it or not and don't take this to an extreme but a slight alcohol use can actually help your hdl
2: Uh, beat me to it yeah yeah, yeah. Ask
0: you about that. right you know I like my scotch so yeah, yeah. <laughs> as you do but you know having a scotch one or two scotches once in a while can help your HDL but keep in mind that drinking too much excessive alcohol which is basically more than that you know more than yeah. two it's no longer beneficial to your heart and in fact it goes the opposite way it's actually an increased risk of heart disease once you take it over a certain number gotcha interesting
2: I didn't realize that it was all types of alcohol I feel like I've heard red wine actually just right before this interview just picked up uh, two bottles of red wine
0: <laughs> <laughs>
2: recently started getting more into that but it, is it the case that it's like all alcohol is it just some alcohol it is
0: all alcohol yeah some studies show that red wine might be a little slightly more beneficial and it's postulated that that might be because it has some fruits as mm-hmm. a grape so that might be added but no the benefits of alcohol are universal and now remember again it's the quantity that matters for your heart health for men they say two maximum one to two. And yeah. I think this isn't so much a male female thing. It's probably more of a weight thing, I'm thinking, because, you know, men are generally going to weigh more than women. But the yeah. recommendation for men, at the most, two, one to two drinks every evening could actually be beneficial to your heart health, including your HDL, for when it's only one. Right. And the other thing I'll add about that, you'd be really surprised if you have to remember what one drink is. You drink scotch once in a while, right? Yeah. I've had a scotch day before. So right. right, right. <laughs> yeah. One scotch is probably not what most of us pour in a glass. Yeah. Um, so, you know what I've done is I actually bought, you know, those things in bars, the measuring thing, right? Like a shot
2: glass kind of a thing? It's like
0: a shot glass, but it's shaped as a little cone, you know? Like oh, yeah, I yeah, got it. Or you drink in a bar, you know, you, you usually don't pour enough and you want them to pour more, but <laughs> yeah, yeah, especially expensive bars. Right. <laughs> but anyway, I bought I bought that. And um, if I'm going to have, you know, a drink at home, like a scotch at home, I'll use that measuring cup now to make sure I'm only having one. Because if you pour it directly into the glass, I almost guarantee that most people are going to think they're drinking more one drink, but that might be two drinks.
2: Yeah. Right. If they two of those, now they're
0: drinking four drinks. Yeah. (laughs) So you have to be very careful with that. And that's why I say with real caution that alcohol could be heart healthy because it really is a very minimal amount of alcohol. One to two alcoholic beverages for men and no more than one for women. Got it. And do we know why
2: that's the case?
0: Yeah. You know, that's not a hundred percent clear. And it could be because it just might relax you a little bit, even subconsciously. Like if you're not relaxed, maybe. Just that one relaxes you enough, but not to the point where it starts affecting your body to cause adverse effects. And alcohol could also have some vasodilating effects, which is basically that your blood vessels are dilated. So it might have that effect as well.
2: That's interesting. I think, yeah, that definitely makes sense to me. And I think, correct me if I'm wrong, stress and those elevated cortisol levels are probably like by far the greatest contributor, right, to cardiovascular disease, or at least it's up there.
0: It's probably up there. And yeah, and that might help, quote unquote, take the edge off. But you know, I don't, I don't want to misstate it in saying that if you're stressed, start drinking. Right? Yeah.
2: <laughs> I guess it's more like you're not going to tell people that are not drinking to start drinking, but if you are drinking, that this is how you should drink.
0: Absolutely, and and if you are drinking, kind of guide them. It's I think some people are misinformed. They kind of hear what I said, but in a different way. Like I said, woman can drink one drink a day, no more. Right? Yeah. I had a patient the day who read that somewhere and said, yeah, no no, it's fine, I drink like seven drinks on the weekend. It doesn't work like that. I can see she thought that because she's just counting it up, but it doesn't work like that. That's more towards binge drinking, which is terrible for your heart and your health in general. It doesn't work the same way. I guess it has to be kind of moderately spaced out through the week. So drinking one to two drinks every day is healthy, but drinking zero drinks from Monday through Friday, and then drinking 14 drinks Saturday and Sunday is not healthy. (laughs) you know I do instruct people they say oh but alcohol is not bad I only drink you know seven drinks a week but that's not the point that you drink seven drinks a week it how are you spacing it out
2: right
0: yeah so like you said I don't tell anyone to drink if they haven't been drinking I may instruct them in the spacing of it if that's what they believed really I mean the truth is more likely I'm probably telling people to cut down on the alcohol because if you go over that limit which is really easy to go over I mean one if you know what a shot glass looks like I think a lot of people are drinking more than they thought they were Definitely. Once you go over that limit, it's bad for heart health and it's bad for your blood pressure too.
2: Absolutely. And on the note of just stress and things like that leading to cardiovascular disease and you know, we've obviously talked about exercise and physical activity. Is there anything in particular that you recommend as far as stress reduction from like a mental health standpoint? Obviously we're kind of in like a boom of yoga and meditation, all these like ancient practices that are now being like rediscovered as a way to help with those things but in your practice, is there like any breathing exercise or anything in particular that you recommend?
0: Yeah, you know, I always recommend the first thing I do is exercise. You know, even if it's not a heavy exercise, I say even just going out for a walk, you know, go out for a walk or a quick jog. It does relieve your stress a little bit. And beyond that, I personally don't do yoga, but I do recommend it because I've heard great stories about patients um, who've done it and it's helped them manage their stress. And deep breathing too. If I don't do it, I should look into it and maybe get into it. It might help, (laughs) but I do recommend I deep breathing exercises where you just kind of sit and take deep breaths in and slow actions. That's also part of yoga. So yeah. I recommend a lot of patients that try yoga relaxation methods. People who don't exercise getting into like a mild exercise routine and it, and it does help them. Great.
2: A documentary. A documentary. Who's the doc that
1: he told you to go see?
2: Better than a doctor. So I guess to conclude, just as far as your daily routine and what your typical week looks like as a cardiologist, how is your weeks typically set up?
0: Yeah. So during the week, I start pretty early. I try to get in by 7.30 or so because we have patients in the hospital, I kind of see all of the patients I know in the hospital who kind of come in with certain conditions, heart attacks, heart failure, whatever for whatever reason, they're hospitalized. So I kind of check on them and then I go over to the office and I see all the office patients. And then throughout some days, I'm also doing some. Certain cardiac procedures, but it's very variable. That's the thing, you know, it's not a predictable field, but you know, I probably, if no emergency, between six and seven or so in the evening. But if there's an emergency that comes in, it's not the type of job where you clock out, right? Yeah. So I kind of just stay till my patients are taken care of, and that's just unpredictable. I think a lot of people wonder, especially people interested in the field, about calls. And I think the way we have it set up is probably average for a cardiac practice. I take call one weekday of the week. What that means, that doesn't really change my day during the day. What that means is that I have to make sure that, you know, my phone is next to me yeah. and any patients can call with questions or if any patients hospitalized and people in the emergency department or the hospital floors need my advice, they'll call me. And if there's any situation where I have to go in, I have to be available to go in. And for that reason, I have to be within about a 20 to 30 minute radius drive of the hospital no matter what I do that evening. That's my weekday call. In a given month, I take one weekend call. So, you know, people kind of say, oh, you're a cardiologist, you must never have a weekend off. That's not true. You know, I have three weekends off a month, but I'm working one weekend. People are always kind of thinking like cardiologists, we have no free time. It's not necessarily true. Three weekends in a month, I should be free as far as work. Now, the one weekend I'm on call, that doesn't just consist of answering phone calls. That consists, I actually go into the hospital and see multiple patients. I'm probably there till the evening or, you know, very late afternoon, just seeing all my patients who are in the hospital making sure they're okay and no emergencies. And then those nights of the weekends, I'm also available for any emergencies. But my group with my partners, we basically split it. So I'm on one of the weekends of the four. I would think that's about average for a cardiology practice.
2: Gotcha. That sounds like you guys have it pretty fair as far as how you're dividing up that response. Yeah,
0: exactly. It's very fair. And, you know, the one thing, though, to keep in mind, the days at work are very unpredictable. You know, you can't really make plans because you never know. I might be there until late hours on a week at night and that could be tough with the family but you know i think they understand and they're supportive if your patients are in need you, you can't just leave that's part of the job
2: right bringing it back to what we started the conversation on with like exercise and your own personal health where do you fit that in are you typically the type that will try to get your workout in before work or after work or is it the kind of variable based on what your schedule is and
0: yeah extremely variable it's very difficult to make a situation where you come up with a routine sometimes i come home and you know i remember when my kids were much younger when they were babies they would go to sleep so i'd kind of just like even do something in my basement after they fell asleep so i'd yeah. be able to spend time with them you know right they just run on a treadmill or do some push-ups and things like that yeah or if, if i get out get done on the earlier side with work i'll swing by the gym before <laughs> I come home or something like that really it's just I think you have to be flexible with that that's the key I mean I know people it has worked for people who are able to wake up extremely early yeah you know, I mean, which I, can't do. I mean, I have a couple of colleagues who, who will go to the gym at like five in the morning. Yeah. If you can do that, great. You know, right. that's probably the only way you could really make it very routine. Yeah, yeah. because the morning, I mean, you know, you kind of know you're not going to start at five, but once your day starts seven, seven thirty, you know, you don't know what's going to happen. when Exactly. You're, so you just got to throw it in. So, yeah. How many
2: days on average would you say you get to the gym or do some sort of exercise? Some
0: sort of exercise, probably four to five, but that might just. Be at home, like running on the treadmill at night yeah. and doing some push ups or something, and then I try to do like a real workout like two to three days at the gym. Okay, that's good
2: for me. and I know this is audio and people can't see you right now, but I'm just like, I'm trying to look like you do. <laughs> You're
0: really okay. Thanks, I appreciate like, it. What
2: do I have to do? The bare minimum to look even in the ballpark of this guy. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Thank you, <laughs> but this was great, man. Thank you so much. You obviously brought a tremendous amount of value. Any final words? Uh, about anything.
0: Final words is that a lot of our health is in our own hands. We just have to take the initiative to do something about it for ourselves, you know? Yeah. Our diet, our exercise regimen, we have to stop making excuses. Anybody can say, you know, I don't have time, but yeah. like we said, the all or nothing. It's not all or nothing. You know, everyone has some time to fit health into their life. And in the end, like that's, it's also teaching it to our kids. They're going to watch you. You know, if you have children, like they're going to watch you and, and then you're kind of passing it on to the next generation that we can't be sick. We can't not care about our health. Prevention is everything. If you come to the hands of healthcare and cardiologists, yeah, of course, like we'll do our best to take care of you. But the goal is for people not to have to see me, basically.
2: Yeah, I love that, man. One quote that I keep revisiting over and over, I think it was one of the founders of the Mayo Clinic who said something to the effect of the goal of medicine is to prolong life and prevent disease. And the ideal of medicine is to make the physician, obsolete, basically, you know, like not needing to see the physician, just like you said, in much simpler way is exactly that. Like prevention is everything. And really, the ideal of medicine should be to make the physician as close to irrelevant as possible, even though that's never going to be the case. But to embody that mindset for people, I think that could be the biggest service that we can do.
0: I completely agree.
2: Thanks again, man. This was awesome.
0: All right. No problem. Sarissa. No, thanks for having me. It was fun.
2: Definitely. We'll do it again soon.
0: All right. Right, cool. You. Bye.
2: Documentary. Documentary. Who's the doc that he told you to go see? Podcastville. Hope you enjoyed this installment of Documentaries on Medicine Remix. A big, big, big shout out and thank you to Dr. Venu Chennamsetty for doing this interview. <laughs> I know I learned a lot, so hopefully, you got a lot of value from him as well for your pursuit of a healthy lifestyle. Yeah. This episode was edited and mixed by yours truly, Rish, the MCMD. This episode also featured original production from up and coming hip hop producer JMKM from the Productive Culture Crew. Big ups to him for blessing us with some fire beats on this episode. He'll definitely be hearing us playing more of his shit on our episodes. Also, special thanks to another up-and-coming hip-hop producer, Awareness, for processing the vocals on this episode that we had some technical difficulties with prior to his audio CPR, if you will. So super grateful to him for salvaging the episode and big ups to him for providing us with beats for many of our past episodes and future episodes as well. Check out links to Awareness, JMKM, and Productive Culture in the podcast show notes to listen to more dope music by them. Thanks to all of you for listening and supporting us if you're digging what you're hearing. All we ask for in return is for you to consider leaving us a five-star review on iTunes and following Medicine Remix on social media. Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter is where we're living at right now on the internet. Search Medicine Remix, or you can find links to all of that in our show notes. Leave us a voice message on Anchor to ask a question, share some insights, tell a funny healthcare-related story for our Laugh Spy prescription installment, or just to say hey and show us some love. We appreciate you guys and gals. Until next time, you're listening to the one and only Medicine Remix. <laughs>